You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 1, Episode 12. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the World of Higher Education podcast. Today, my guest is futurist Brian Alexander, and he's here to talk about his new book, Universities on Fire, Higher Education in the Climate Crisis, which was published in March by Johns Hopkins University Press. Though climate crisis books are a dime a dozen, this book is one of the few that looks at climate action through the lens of a particular economic sector or set of actors, in this case, our own sector of universities and colleges. It makes for a fascinating read because not only does it deal with the concrete issues of direct impacts and direct mitigation efforts, it also details a host of alternate ways that higher education can impact climate change and climate politics via research and teaching. If you're looking for inspiration for ways in which universities and colleges can contribute to global well-being in a time of emergency, this is certainly a book you'll want to read. Now, because Brian's a futurist and tends to deal more in scenarios and possibilities than actual drivers of change management, a book can at times, to an empiricist like me at least, feel a little disconnected from the real world of higher education politics. I challenged Brian on the how-to of some of these issues in our interview, and he didn't disappoint. The second half of this interview in particular provides some really interesting insight into issues of what enablers are required for academia to really turn the corner on CO2 emissions. For me, it's one of the highlights of this show to date, for sure. But enough for me, let's let Brian take it away. Enjoy the show. Good morning, Brian. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you, Alex. Good to see you again, and a delight to be on the show for the first time. So, Brian, you've written a book about universities and the climate crisis. I don't see many similar books out there talking about the climate crisis in a sectoral way, like hospitals and the climate crisis or the K-12 sector or the insurance industry. What's special or unique about higher education that it deserves a sectoral treatment when it comes to climate? Well, you're quite true. There aren't many books on this. There's one about the U.S. military and the climate crisis, which is actually very useful. But other than that, I think we're still breaking this down. Higher education has several different things to contribute and several different aspects by which it is impacted. One is our research enterprise, which is so critical to the entire world of climate studies, not just climate science, but how humans respond to it and how we think about it. We also have our teaching mission, which is so crucial for everything from thinking about general climate literacy or general climate knowledge for a generation growing up in an ever-ratcheting up climate crisis to producing students who are equipped for green jobs, whatever those might be. And also just helping students think about the general dislocations that climate crisis may bring about. We also have, and this is not unique, but this is worth noting, but we have our physical plant. Most campuses have some kind of physical footprint, you know, grounds, buildings, parking lots, and so forth. And those are impacted by the climate crisis in different ways. Everything from direct impact by storms to having to rethink them in terms of the overall transition away from a carbon-based system of energy and production. I think that there's also a fourth is that we have a public mission and that can be town gown relations and that our campuses and their immediate community, but that can also be our role as public intellectuals, our people working in the broader world as we negotiate with businesses for contracts, nonprofits for support and relationships, governments for regulatory compliance and so on. We have the ability to contribute greatly to national and international discussions about the climate crisis. So let me pick up on the issue of infrastructure. One of the ways that you talk about the climate crisis is the way that crises may affect institutional operations directly. So I'm thinking of examples, you know, sort of local catastrophic cases like Pakistani campuses being underwater for most of last fall, or, you know, to go back in history, like what happened to Tulane after Hurricane Katrina. 
I'm curious, in the United States, which institutions do you think are most at risk physically from climate catastrophe? I think right now, the institutions that are most at risk are all of the ones that are in the state of Florida. Florida is low-lying. It is massively exposed to sea level rise from both the Atlantic and the shared Gulf of Mexico. It also, we can observe that its politics are not exactly the most climate friendly. But on top of that, it's also likely to be sapped by rising wet bulb temperatures. Wet bulb temperature is a combination of the thermal temperature plus humidity. So all of these, I think, make Florida extremely dangerous. And now, I mean, you can also look up and down the East Coast as a whole, which is all likely to be nibbled away by the rising Atlantic. And just not just the, when we're talking about rising sea levels, it's not just the rising water. It's also the fact that water infiltrates uh, local groundwater, which then impacts everything from drinking water to what plants and animals can grow there. And if you look up and down the East Coast, you see a lot of colleges and universities, especially in the Northeast, you know, looking at New Jersey, looking at Delaware, New York State, Maine. Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts. I mean, so there's a lot of exposure there. But also, I would look in the Southwest. One of the ways of talking about climate change is that either you get too much precipitation when you don't need it, or you get too little when you actually do need more precipitation. So the American desert, so-called, in the Southwest, looking at regions like Arizona, Nevada, and Utah, those are areas where there's a great deal of danger. The specific thing around Salt Lake, there are a couple of institutions there because the Salt Lake itself is dwindling and may start emitting toxic fumes very quickly, but also just the advancing desert and desertification, which gives us rise to the question of, is it worth it to continue irrigating, supplying water for other purposes and air conditioning, even the outdoors in those areas? Uh, it's interesting. You think Ron DeSantis will leave enough of Florida higher education standing before the climate crisis gets <laughs> to it, but that's, that's a discussion for a different day. A lot of your book is about routes for institutions to get to net zero at a corporate level. Could you maybe talk a little bit about which university activities do cause the greatest CO2 emissions? Where should institutions be focusing their efforts to reduce their carbon footprint? What's the low-hanging fruit here? Well, this is a great question, Alex. It's difficult to answer this question because there is not good data about this. Individual campuses may or may not measure the carbon footprint. Rarely do they do so as a whole, the corporate level, as you say. And we don't have good data that's comparative on this. So we can say, you know, Harvard is better than University of Miami or Utah, the whole state's institutions are better than those in Nevada. We just don't have good data on this. So that's a research hole that needs to be filled. The biggest production of CO2, though, I would guess right now, based on the research I've seen, has to do with the physical plant, the production of buildings, which use cement and concrete, which emit a lot of CO2 in their lifetime, plus the cost of maintaining air conditioning them, providing them lights and heating them. And that all depends on electricity, which is often sourced from burning coal, burning other fossil fuels. I mean, air flight, I think, is also a serious gout of CO2 into the atmosphere. It's interesting. We don't have good measurements about just how much plane flying, how many miles a given academic community does. And I, by academic community, I would include students as well as staff, as well as faculty. Well, you know, at a per capita basis or at a per mile basis, air travel emits a great deal. So that's one we have to take a look at. I also don't have good figures on food systems uh, because we know that food systems that rely on meat and on animal products emit both carbon dioxide, especially in travel, but also methane in the course of production. And methane, while shorter lived in the atmosphere than CO2, is much more powerful to 40 times powerful. Let me pick up on that issue about travel. I think, you know, that's an area where if you've got enterprise level plans to get to net zero, this is one where you've got to change a lot of individual behavior. 
I was intrigued. I love the passage in your book where you talked about the visceral opposition at universities when talking about reducing academic travel, you know, particularly for conferences. That's really ingrained in people, even after COVID. Got to get to those conferences. So tell us about whether you see much prospect for academic culture changing to facilitate a reduction in emissions from travel. But some of the cultural shifts are actually very difficult. So we think, for example, about the idea that someone early in their career can actually benefit from the deep immersion in a professional event, which is honestly so far harder to get online. We could also think about research enterprises where the research object is not fully digitized. So, you know, think, for example, about archives which aren't digitized or think about natural sites that just haven't been seriously scanned. And I think those are going to take some heavier lifting. Uh, beyond that, though, I think returning to a professional event, going to an archive, which is digitized, but you like being there for various reasons, the emotional purposes of reconnecting with people. And of course, you know, the perk of just having a vacation, you know, or a vacation-like event when you just get to go somewhere else and somebody else is done. I mean, all of this, I think we know how to handle this. We did this during the pandemic. And there are interesting projects, some which I described in the book, trying to do this for climate purposes. And I think we will gradually get there. At my most cynical and reflecting my undergraduate training in Soviet studies, uh, I would say this is progress that is generational. I think that people in their 20s right now will be much more comfortable with this than people in their 60s. So we may see, as in many situations, progress one funeral at a time, as the old saying goes. Um, but also, I think that as climate awareness builds up as, and as the crisis ratchets up and people feel it ratcheting, which isn't necessarily the same thing. I think we may see more academics start to change their minds and reduce their flying. Right. Are there any institutions you'd point to as being leaders in getting to net zero, ones that have a particularly strong record in achieving rapid decrease in carbon emissions? Well, one that really stands out for me is an outlier in Pennsylvania. Dickinson College has had president, provost, and a faculty consensus that they need to take sustainability very seriously. And they've done some unusual things. For example, they have requirement for the undergraduate curriculum that students have to take at least one class in sustainability in order to graduate, which is unusual. The University of Barcelona students actually struck to make that happen. But Dickinson actually imposed that successfully. They have a wired range of other practices. They have an off-campus organic farm, which the students work at. And in town, they sell both the produce as well as food, you know, made from the produce. They also have an interesting project. Again, this is that American tradition of undergraduate research where the undergraduates researched the town. It's in the town of Carlisle, a small town. They measured the town's carbon footprint and then presented that data to the town leadership. I forget if it's a city council or a mural here, but the town really respected that and actually referred them to the county in order to do the same for the county, which is all terrific data. I, I'm, I, as someone who supports undergraduate research, I think this is just a terrific thing. But also the campus has reduced its emissions. They achieved net zero some years ago and maintain that. I think that's in many ways an outlier and a leader and one to keep an eye on. That's great. We're going to take a short break. Be back in a moment. This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Among our many lines of work is program review and new program development. Looking to refresh some of your curricular options? Higher Education Strategy Associates can help with market research, evaluation of employer needs, competition analysis, and national and global reviews of curriculum trends by study field. Get in touch to find out how your institution can benefit. Email us at info at higheredstrategy.com. 
And we're back. Brian, another chunk of your book is about how universities can change their core activities of research and teaching in order to deal with the climate crisis. Let me start just with the issue of curricula, because you've already mentioned it a little bit. You give a lot of examples of new programs or curricular tweaks that we might use in order to affect change. But I'm kind of curious, what is the evidence that students actually want these kinds of new or amended programs? What does the demand side of the equation look like? And bluntly, will universities make or lose money by trying to address climate change through the curriculum? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, right now, I would say that a good bet would be to expand the climate curriculum. And we should make sure that that occurs at different levels. That can include classes which are not thematically climate-related, but which include climate content. Uh, it also includes specific classes, climate science 101, but also minor certificate programs, degrees. And we should expect to see more in the way of undergraduate as well as graduate programs and perhaps indeed entire units or colleges devoted to this. The evidence we have has to do with polling by generations. And we know that people under 30, especially under 20, tend to be much, much more concerned about the climate crisis than their elders. And so to the extent that we teach traditional age undergraduates, I think we can rely on that. I haven't seen good evidence polling specifically current undergraduate students. I really like to see that. I think that's another research opportunity that should be filled. But I think right now that's a pretty good bet. It depends on your institution. It depends in part on the culture that you draw from. And some campuses already have a progressive or environmental Layer to them, think about Lewis and Clark College out on the West Coast of the U.S., for example, or the Vermont Law School in Vermont, which is explicitly very green. I think you can expand that, and I think it would be a good bet. But that isn't easy to do. It requires a wide range of everything, from hiring to professional support, professional development, perhaps interdisciplinary research centers on campus. And it may also require the ability to redesign an entire curriculum perhaps overall an undergraduate curriculum or at least individual departments. Okay. So in a similar vein, you talk a lot about ways that university research can adapt their programs of research to address issues, policy issues of climate and climate adaptation. And you provide countless examples of these kinds of research efforts. Two thoughts occurred to me as I read those parts of the book. The first is that a lot of the examples you provide are multidisciplinary in nature and often require very large teams to work on. And not all profs are particularly interested or adept at that kind of research. That's the first. And second, someone's got to pay for all this, right? Like a research opportunities, researchers follow the research funding opportunities. So what are the prospects for changing academic research habits? And what are the prospects for funding agencies, particularly in the United States, making more money available for these kinds of projects? Because those seem like some key enablers for the kind of change you're talking about. They really are. And it's important to remember that almost every academic discipline has already engaged the climate crisis. I mean, not just the obvious people like you know, earth science, environmental studies, chemistry, meteorology, but also we've seen this in religion, we've seen this in philosophy, in history, in economics, in psychology, sociology, even the humanities. So we're already seeing this happen. So this is not hypothetical or speculative. This is already starting. If you will forgive the terrible pun, this is a rising tide. I think that for the sciences and the quantitatively intensive social sciences, they already work in teams. The plural authorship is the norm. So for them, I think this is not surprising. I think for the quantitatively less intensive social sciences, humanities, this is more difficult, especially in humanities where single author work is the norm and plural authorship is often seen as basically not worth crediting. So that will take some change and some getting used to. But also I think a lot of humanists are really in the position where they see themselves as being able to cross disciplinary boundaries 
and get value for that. I get valued for that in their work. So we should expect to see some of that as well. Supporting this is tricky. I mentioned before the need for multidisciplinary centers and professional development. The question of funding this, I think, is very interesting. Right now, in many countries, not all, but many countries, there is government-led, nationally-led interest in climate studies. And I think that's helping shape some funding in the public sector. I think in the private sector, a lot of foundations are interested in this. And a growing number of businesses are also interested in at least greening up, you know, trying to get their ESG goals in or trying to make money on the transition away from the fossil fuel-based energy system. Okay. One thing you didn't talk about much in your book was what I call the, the second or maybe third order effects of the climate crises on higher education. When I do my talks to universities about likely scenarios for the next decade, you know, it goes something like this. The climate crisis intersects with various other world crises, for instance, Ukraine, to create increased political and economic volatility, which, you know, that doesn't just tie up government resources, it ties up government headspace, if I could put it this way, policy attention, such that universities, I think they're going to get less attention and less money over the next little while. They shouldn't expect much in the way of increased government support, and maybe they should even brace themselves for cuts as other priorities rise to the top. Am I being too pessimistic? Are there other no. scenarios here? No, I don't think you're being pessimistic at all. My previous book, Academia Next, argued that higher education, specifically in the United States, was overbuilt for capacity. And we know that a total enrollment in the United States since 2012 has declined every single year. And in fact, our measurements of enrollment now may be too optimistic because they include a lot of dual enrollment in community colleges with high school students as well as a number of international students. So I think higher education in the U.S. is clearly overbuilt, and there's not a lot of public appetite for increasing funding at any level. And probably the American Supreme Court is going to shut down the Biden administration's debt forgiveness plan this summer. So I don't think it's pessimistic at all. I like Adam Chuza's use of the term polycrisis to describe the intersection of all these different threads. So Ukraine coinciding with DEI pushes, coinciding with COVID, coinciding with climate crisis. And I think we can use a metaphor of oxygen that... that you know, too many crises suck all the oxygen out of the room and it's hard to maintain all this. The Swedish climate scholar and activist Andreas Malm said that he thought COVID was the worst thing to happen to climate activists and that just pushed climate off the table. I don't think it's completely correct. He said that early in the crisis, but I think there was a lot of that going on. And we see this with Ukraine. The Russian war in the Ukraine is also not just accelerated a lot of energy development, both for good and for bad. But also, it really just sucked all the oxygen out of the atmosphere. So it was really hard to be able to talk about everything. I think higher ed is going to have to make a deliberate effort to engage with the climate crisis on multiple fronts, multiple domains. Because we're not going to get a lot of support, broadly speaking, from the world around us. Lastly, one thing I really appreciated in your book was the fact that it is genuinely global in its coverage of university initiatives. I'm curious, what did you learn about the different parts of the world and their different approaches to the issue of universities and climate change? How much of the policy response is genuinely universal, because academia is somewhat universal, and in what areas do you see some very specific national approaches? Question, and that was a major theme. In fact, I started to write, was actually version of academia next for all of higher education, looking ahead 75 years, and I found that the climate crisis woefully under-discussed, so I ended up focusing on that. You can find some interesting variations that are actually pretty well known to scholars like yourself who work closely in international higher education. European Union, European Commission, universities and colleges tend to be very focused on process and on, on regional policies. China, in contrast, more or less has a top-down from Xi all the way down. 
drive to decarbonize while at the same time they're burning tons and tons of coal. So it's interesting to see how this starts to play out in Chinese higher education. I think it's interesting to take a look at Middle Eastern and African higher education, which is still very clearly focused on jobs as the output of higher education. So I think that's where we're likely to see more push for green jobs as well as for specific job skills. So for example, just a drive to have more electrical engineering, because that's a crying need for this process. I think in the United States, we have you know, all kinds of unique oddities. We have a very active climate denial movement, which you do see in other countries. You see this in Brazil, for example, you see this in Turkey, you see this in Australia to an extent as well. But we also have an unusually disorganized and disaggregated higher education sector. We have a ton of institutions, about 4,000 or so, very little federal influence, much less oversight. About two-thirds of institutions are state-funded in theory and to a small degree in practice, and states give various degrees of oversight. About one-third are private, and they are in many ways just private entities on earth. And so it's this is very different from, say, the European zone, where you get a lot more, not just top-down management, but also a desire to have cohesive action in one direction. And that's all the time we have for today. Brian Alexander, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Alex. I've enjoyed this conversation. I look forward to hearing more from your listeners. It just remains for me to thank this show's excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and you, the listeners, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future podcasts, please do get in touch with us at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us next week when our guest will be Dr. Olabisi Deje Futile, Editor-in-Chief of Frank Talk Now and Chief Operating Officer of AF24 News and a regular commentator on Nigerian higher education. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T-Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.